Okay, wait, wait, just a second. I got to plug this. Yow! It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. This is podcast number 139 for April 19th, 2009. You know, I've been accused from time to time of being a professional communicator, and sometimes I like to think of myself that way. But I have to plead not guilty. After all, a professional communicator would know enough to start announcing several weeks beforehand that he would be speaking at the Licking County Computer Society. Well, I'll be doing that this coming Tuesday, April 21st. I will get a little bit ahead of the game with announcing that the I'll be at the Columbus Computer Society. That's May 20th, about a month from now. The topic will be the same at both locations, Adobe and the Creative Suite 4 collection of applications. If you've been listening to the show all along, you probably already have all of that information already. But I will be able to show how to do some of the things that I've talked about. And relax, in the interest of allowing everybody to get home well before midnight, I will seriously limit the number of features that I show. So I'll try to use your time wisely if you show up. Wow, that was some Patch Tuesday this month. The monthly Patch Tuesday for Microsoft extended to Wednesday for some people, and in some cases to Thursday. Fortunately, I got all of my patches in one big batch on Wednesday, but I know some people have had to deal with system reboots on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. If you have automatic updates turned off, now would be a real good time to make your way to Microsoft's Windows Update site, Several of the bugs that were squished this week were dangerous zero-day exploits. If your computer was up to date going into the week, you would have found eight updates, and those eight updates fix 21 problems. Microsoft numbers its patches starting with MS-09, meaning Microsoft 2009, followed by a dash and then a three-digit number. I guess the hope is that there will never be more than 999 patches in any given year, and I certainly hope that's the case. This batch of patches was numbered 9 through 16. The number 9 patch was a response to what is probably the most dangerous bug. Flaws in Excel could allow remote code execution, and Microsoft deemed that patch, of course, as critical. Of the two problems addressed by the patch, one could allow a zero-day attack, the most serious problems were with Excel 2000, but all versions up through Excel 2007 are vulnerable to some extent. Patch number 10 fixes bugs in the WordPad and Office text converters. This is another bug that could allow remote code execution. If you have Word 2007, this one doesn't affect you. It is most critical for Word 2000, but the patch will also be applied to Word 2003. Patch 11 addresses yet another remote code execution bug, this one in Microsoft's Direct Show, which is part of DirectX 8.1 and 9.0 under Windows 2000 XP and Windows Server 2003. XP and Vista are not vulnerable to that one. Patch number 12 isn't critical, but since you're in the neighborhood, you might as well install it. The flaw here could allow a user to gain access to administrator privileges 
and there are four discrete bugs that affect all current versions of Windows. All of those are patched by number 12. Patch number 13 is also rated as critical because one of the flaws it addresses could allow a malicious web server to take control of the system. This is not an Internet Explorer bug. Instead, it affects other applications that use the Windows HTTP services components. The winner for the most bugs fixed with a single patch is number 14. It resolves a total of six security problems. Microsoft rates three of those as critical for users of Internet Explorer versions 5, 6, and 7. If you have already updated to Internet Explorer 8, it is not vulnerable. Patch number 14 is rated as only a moderate threat. It affects all versions of Windows except Windows 2000. The bug allows a slight chance that an attacker could gain administrator privileges. And at the bottom of the list, patch 16. It's a medium-level threat, or important, depending on the applications installed on your computer. The threat isn't great, but you'll still want to make sure that that one is installed. So, if you want to be sure, use the Windows Update from the operating system, or just open Internet Explorer and choose Windows Update from the Tools menu. But however you get there, if you haven't updated your system this week, do make sure you get that done. I watched a film this week called Revolution OS. It's essentially about Linux. If you get a chance, it would be a worthwhile watch. It's an hour or so, not a real long documentary, but well worth watching. The movie was timely because I was in the process of writing about Linux, In fact, I was writing in gedit. That's an open source text editor in Linux. The computer that gedit and Linux were running on, well, it's my primary computer, which has both Linux and Windows XP installed. I've said many times that today's Linux, particularly the easy-to-install distributions such as those from Ubuntu, well, Linux does everything that many users need. It's free, it's easy to install, it updates itself almost automatically. It is generally more secure and more stable than Windows. But Linux machines are still just a tiny fraction of desktop systems. Dell sells perhaps 20,000 Linux computers a year. 20,000. Given today's economy, I have to wonder why these machines aren't flying out of warehouses. Well, I think I know why. I said I was writing the report on a free text editor under Linux on my primary production computer. But when I import the report into the TechBiter Worldwide website, I'll be running Windows because Adobe Dreamweaver doesn't run under Linux. Well, it does run under Linux if I run Wine first. But if I need a Windows application, why not just boot Windows? That's one of the reasons that Linux won't win, even in today's economy. Those of us who understand and depend on applications such as Dreamweaver, Word, Photoshop, and the like know that we might be able to make do with Bluefish or Amaya for websites, with OpenOffice for word processing, and maybe even with the GIMP for photo editing. But the key term there is make do. Those open source applications have attracted a large following, but none of the applications I've mentioned comes even close to offering the features that the commercial software have. I couldn't make do with those applications. Maybe you can't either. But probably the biggest reason Linux won't win is fear. The chief technical officer might well run Apple's OS X or Linux at the office and at home, 
But the thought of converting 50 or 100 or 5,000 users at the company from Windows-based applications to Linux-based applications or OS X-based applications would cause no small amount of heartburn. Most users stop learning when they have mastered the bare minimum that they need to perform their assigned tasks. No matter that Word may have features that would make their work faster and easier, there's no time to learn that. You have to get your work done. And there's certainly no time to learn an entirely new operating system and new applications. Now understand, please, I am not criticizing users. The exact same thing can be said about cars. We use a car to do what we need it to do to get us from here to there. We don't necessarily take a lot of time to learn all about how the car works. I'm lazy, too. In fact, I'm so lazy that I'll take the time needed to understand an application. Sometimes I'll spend hours trying to find a better way to perform a 30-minute task. That's how lazy I am, because I know there's probably a way to make that 30-minute task a 5-minute task. And what I've learned over the past 25 or 30 years is that finding a faster way will save me a lot of time and effort over the week's months, and years that I use an application. Once I figured out how to turn that 30-minute task into a 5-minute task, I have an extra 25 minutes that I can use for something else. But I digress. Another reason Linux won't win, users don't like change. Show them Office 2007 and they will denounce its new interface, even though spending a few minutes learning how to use that interface would pay off big time. Tell them they must switch to a new operating system and new applications, and you'll probably have a mutiny on your hand. Chief technical officers really don't like mutinies. At the time I was writing this report, the last time I had run Linux was 39 days ago. I know that because the Ubuntu update manager told me. As I was typing, the system downloaded 115 updates. Some of these updates were operating system changes. Many were for applications. Despite my saying that many people will find that Linux does all they need to do, it's clear that I don't run Linux that much here at TechBiter Worldwide. If Linux was the only operating system available to me, I'm sure that I would make do with it. But I'm the kind of geek who in the mid-1980s spent no small amount of time reading 300-page DOS manuals and trying to think of reasons to use the available commands. And I'm the kind of person who attempts to learn a new programming language by trying to think of ways to use the various functions described in manuals. It's pretty unlikely that most of the people who use your company's computers do that kind of thing. The third shortcoming for Linux is the relatively small number of Linux administrators. It's easy to find somebody who has experience, knowledge, and even certification for Windows-based networks, Linux experts, well, they're a little harder to find. So although Linux boots faster than Windows, even though Linux is free, even though Linux is much less likely to crash than Windows, and even though today's Linux distributions are both easy to install and likely to include everything the average user needs, Linux is still likely to place a distant third behind Windows and Apple's OS X. Apple's OS X is a distant second to Windows. And by the way, the latest version of Ubuntu Linux 9.04 is due to be released on April 20th. Occasionally I take a look back at some of the articles from a few years ago to see if any of my predictions have actually come true. 
In 2005, I wrote about WiMAX. WiMAX works like Wi-Fi, more or less, except that it covers a radius of several miles instead of just a few feet. Nearly five years ago, I wrote about people who must deal with slow, substandard modem service for reasons beyond their control. You might live in a Chicago or New York City apartment building with poor quality telephone lines. Or you might have the same problem, poor quality telephone lines, in a rural area. Living in a big city, you might someday have access to cable. If the phone lines are poor quality, DSL won't be an option for you regardless of where you live. But WiMAX could be. In 2005, my internet connection was about 2 megabits per second. Now it's up in the 6 to 8 megabits per second range. So it's hard for me to even consider a 56 kilobits per second modem or a even slower connection. WiMAX could help bring faster connections to people in the situations where they can't get speeds faster than 28 to 56 kilobits per second. I have a map of Ohio that shows large areas of the state actually do have WiMAX coverage. The cost will be more than the standard dial-up, of course, but usually a lot less than satellite. A WiMAX system typically has a range of 10 to 15 miles from the wireless access point, so that's a 10 to 15 mile radius. It's, of course, affected by terrain. Coverage will be more even in a flat area, less so in a hilly area, and perhaps blocked entirely if you're behind a big building. But it's a way to place high-speed service at the doorstep of just about everybody within that 10 to 15 mile radius. And even in a rural area, a lot of people live inside a 20 or 30 mile wide circle. A listener in 2005 told me about Genco SpeedNet. That's a service that covers most of Union County and bits of the surrounding counties. The service is still in operation, and this shows how a small operator can provide usable Internet connectivity. It was small companies, after all, that originally provided Internet service for early users. That was before Time Warner, Wide Open West, and all the other big guys got into the market. It may be that small operators in the WiMAX area will be able to compete with the big guys in a way that they could not compete with wired services. WiMAX is an open standard that is administered by the WiMAX Forum. The group has been around since 2001. Hundreds of test systems have been set up around the world. Speed and distance are variables in WiMAX systems. A system can provide relatively high bit rates, maybe 70 megabits per second, but only at relatively close range. In reality, most systems operate around 3 megabits per second or less. If you are still using a modem, and that modem is running at a twelfth of the speed, 3 megabits per second would seem blazingly fast. And even in an area with WiMAX coverage, service may not be available in all areas. It depends on your elevation and the obstacles between your location and the towers. Here's a question for you. Who has the best customer service in the PC business? According to Forrester Research, it is Apple. But in this case, best is about an 80% approval rating. Now, in school, 80% would be a weak B- minus or maybe a C. Overall, computer manufacturers get about as much respect as used car salesmen and cell phone companies. Now, now, wait a minute. Cell phone companies figure that they're winning if at least one-third of their customers don't want them burned at the stake. 
Forrester Research surveyed 4,500 customers about their interactions with PC manufacturers in 2008. Given Apple's best-in-show rating of 80%, you might be wondering what the other companies got. Gateway scored 66%, HP 64%, Compaq, which is to say HP, 63%, and Dell 58%. Was the problem manufacturers, equipment, or something else? You know, it might be something else. It might be Microsoft Windows. Which reminds me, I spent all day last Saturday trying to avoid having to reinstall Windows. Literally. Then I spent all day Sunday reinstalling Windows. And the computer still isn't working right. Linux, however, which runs on the same computer, as I've mentioned, continues to run just fine. If Microsoft hits a home run with Windows 7, there is hope for the company's future. If not, well, there's Linux. Forrester Vice President Bruce Temkin says that Microsoft needs to do a better job of serving its customers. To that, I would add that Microsoft needs to understand that its customers are people, people like you and me, not the OEMs who buy Windows from Microsoft. Somebody sent me a link last week to Johnny Carson's bit as the speaker at the funeral of a thesaurus editor. He repeated, reiterated, restated, and said again every word, particularly words dealing with death, kicking the bucket, passing on, pushing up daisies. It was a funny bit, and it was on YouTube. Then I noticed Carson's send-up of Walter Cronkite's final broadcast, so I watched that, and that was fun. But then there was a link to Cronkite's broadcast on January 22, 1972. The video picked up as the CBS Evening News came out of a commercial and returned to Cronkite, who was on the phone. That's right, this is the most important evening news program in the country. They've come out of commercial, and the guy in the big chair is on the phone. He holds up a finger, one of those wait-a-minute fingers, and then says, Thank you very much, Tom. I'm on the air right at the moment. Former President Lyndon Johnson had died, and his press secretary, former White House Assistant Press Secretary Tom Johnson, had called Cronkite with the news. I remembered that day almost as if it had been yesterday. I recalled one of the nation's best reporters listening then repeating back what he had heard, adding information from memory. Graphics? None. Sound effects? There weren't any. Glitz? Nope. Just a reporter doing his job, obtaining the facts, then telling the story. It was an electrifying video. It was video I had not seen for 37 years. It was a log copy, black and white. But seeing it now reminds me of just how much of what passes for television news has been degraded by technology. But once again, I digress. Would anyone a decade ago have thought that an online service that provides on-demand video would be so important? YouTube is yet another Google property, and this week the company announced it has signed agreements with Hollywood Studios to make thousands of TV episodes and hundreds of movies available. What's next? Maybe paid TV on your computer. Should this make companies like Netflix nervous? Yes, it should. The YouTube agreement includes Sony, Lionsgate, MGM, and a few others. 
This is important because YouTube registers 90 million visitors per month or more. That is far more than any other video site. And by far more, I mean that the closest competitor has about 10% of YouTube's traffic. But YouTube is not yet profitable. Analysts say that YouTube will lose nearly half a billion dollars in 2009. By providing broadcast quality video, YouTube hopes to increase its advertising revenue. How would the payments work? Micropayments, perhaps, as in less than $1 per program are a possibility. So is a subscription program of some sort. Online, on-demand video works. I have been able to use Netflix to watch some programs recently, and the video quality is surprisingly good. Yes, you do need a fast connection. But more than half of all American households now have what passes for fast in this country. So, here's looking at you. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.